Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrity CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money Making Conversations. Here we go. Hello, Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to Money Making Conversations. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. As I say it every week, it's time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. People always talk about their gifts, their passion. Leave with your gifts. Stop talking about it. And don't let your age, friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. My interviews, I bring on Money Making Conversations up for you. They're my celebrity friends. Some celebrities I don't know. Meet them for the first time on my show, but they're for you. CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. My next guest is a guy I haven't seen in a long time. He's one of my favorite people, Al Harrington. He's a retired NBA star, is the CEO and founder of the premium cannabis company, Viola Incorporated. Inspired and named in honor of his grandmother, Viola Harrington. After seeing how cannabis helped Viola, who suffered from glaucoma and diabetes, Al's entrepreneurial endeavors began in during his MBA career when he strategically invested in startups across the cannabis industry. Then in 2011, Al brought, bought, brought Biola to the market after overseeing the carefully curated cultivation and extraction and production. This part of his mission is to say this entrepreneurial opportunity is for everybody. He's there. He's a leader in the business. He's throughout this country. We're going to talk about the locations that he's grown his business, over 100 employees. Wow. Please welcome to the show, my man. He's an entrepreneur. Don't even, like you say, what you say, what, what, what LeBron say, more than an athlete, that's my man right here, <laughs> Al Harrington. How you doing, Al? I'm good. How you doing today? Al, you know, I, I I had to bring that up, man, more than an athlete, man, because uh, I remember I was interviewing um, Chris Paul, and Chris Paul, God, he was t- in the interview, he talked about the guy said, guy was caught off guard that he knew more than just about the game that he played. He said, man, we do, we dribble, we do more than just dribble a basketball, man. We eat, we live, we have family, we do business deals. And that's a really, sometimes you can get caught off by that. People just kind of like shortchange you because you are an athlete, correct? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you got, and it's to be expected, right? I mean, most people or fans or whatever, they only see us on Sports Center, right? Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, we don't have too many outlets where we get a chance to, um, you know, show the other side of our life, right? The mm-hmm. things that we do in the community, the investments that we make, you know? So, um, you know, it's important for like platforms like what you have here, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? To be able to highlight athletes and allow us to show the world that we are more than athletes and we're more than guys that just can dribble a basketball and, and make a and make a hoop. You know, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, when you're given a talent, and I would say I would to be... Uh, uh, I have to slow it down when I say the word talent because then everybody has a talent, but if you don't work on it and mature it, then guess what? It's just a talent. Let's talk about the process of once you realize you had the ability to play basketball and then people saw you having that ability to play basketball, how did you move forward in making it an opportunity that you can make money with it? Well, you know, for me, like – my basketball talent came from nowhere almost, right? Uh, when I grew up, believe it or not, I was, uh, you know, I was always the biggest kid in class, but 
I was the biggest kid in class. Right. You know, my real name is Albert, so I used to be Fat Albert growing up. So <laughs> I used to get bullied a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. about my size and my weight. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, uh, the way I could take out my frustration was on a football field. Mm-hmm. So I played football up until I was a freshman in high school, and that's when I had a growth spurt. So I went from, you know, 5'10 to 6'4", and, you know, played on the freshman team, wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for some reason, you know, my AAU coach, a guy named Sammy Payone and then Jay Syriac, they saw talent in me somehow. And, you know, they started to invite me to workouts and different things like that. And, you know, over time, I fell in love with the game. And, mm-hmm. you know, going into my junior years when I made a commitment that, you know, I wanted to be a ranked athlete. You know, mm-hmm. I was, wasn't was ranked, but I saw a lot of the guys that was in the top 100 and top 10. And I just felt like they wasn't that much better than me. You know, mm-hmm. it's just that they just had been playing longer. So I just really dedicated myself to the gym and just got really good, man. And over a two-year span, I went from an unranked, you know, uh, you know, player to the number one player in the country. Right. So, right. you know, once I got to that point, you know, all the number one players in the country were going to the league. So mm-hmm. I was just like, shoot, if I can get <laughs> to the point where I'm the number one player, I'm going to go pro too. And pretty much that's how I made my decision. I was just like, I'm the number one player. Everybody else is going pro. I'm going to go pro too. And that's but how the, I was able to monetize my talent. But, but the key, key to you was when you got to the NBA, you had, you had mentors. You know, because that's where a lot of players like you that are young don't have a real professional athlete pull you aside. Talk about that experience and the importance of mentorship for a young man who's suddenly in a league of adults. You know, all the responsibility of being an adult is placed on you and you have money. Yeah, it's it's, uh, you know, it's it's eye opening. You know, when you go from literally like nothing to now having a million dollars in the bank, it's mm-hmm. just like you can't fathom it. And, you know, for me, where I was just really lucky was that I got on a, you know, a Indiana Pacers squad that mm-hmm. had just lost in, you know, seven games to Michael Jordan's Bulls. So they brought back a, a fully veteran team. Mm-hmm. So I had guys on my team that just taught me everything. They taught me how to be a professional, which is the most important thing, right? I always say the foundation that they laid with me is the reason why that I was able to play for 16 years. And, you know, to your point, a lot of the younger guys that do get drafted, you know, uh, in the first, the top 10, they usually go to teams that aren't really good, right? And usually mm-hmm. they're not really good because there's poor leadership, the team is extremely young, mm-hmm. and they just have nobody to, you know, kind of give them direction or whatever. So I always say, like, as much as I had wanted to be a top 15 pick or whatever, and I look at the teams that I wanted to draft me, I think that God was definitely looking out for me by putting me on a Pacer team that had guys like Reggie Miller, Mark Jackson, Chris mm-hmm. Mullen, Antonio Davis, who actually allowed me to live with him my freshman year. Yes. I tell this story, quick story. I had got, uh, you know, these books, I called them at the time, in the mail, and I looked at them, and it had, like, the year and date and my name on it and I didn't know what they were so I took them and put it in my closet and like two weeks later I come home from practice and Antonio has these same books and he's like signing them so I asked him what they were and he was like they're my taxes <laughs> was like, I, was like, I was like boy I got those same books downstairs and he was like they get the book <laughs> so I didn't even try to pay taxes you know so it's just like so I mean it was on the court and off the court you know the way that these guys you know uh, lead me and, you know, help set me up to, like I said, be able to play for 16 years. Well, you know, the beauty of you, Al Harrington, we, we, I'm looking at the background, but Al and I met at the Steve Harvey camp. And man, it was hot. And we were just laughing. And we we, we would phone call each other periodically. And then we kind of like lost, uh, like disconnected there. But the thing that I loved about this guy, man, was that 
you know, you always think of people got to have a degree to do this. You have to get a, a certain graduate. And here you was, uh, like you said, you based your life decision on everybody else was number one. They went pro. I'm going to go pro. But then while you was a pro, you had the smarts, the sense to learn how to be a professional and learn there is life after basketball. And that's what I'm talking about. You decided to start investing in your afterlife career while you were still playing. Why was that so important? Well, you know, I, I had a financial, so my, so, you know, quick story. Uh, I got plenty of stories, but my, <laughs> uh, I think it was my third year in the league. I was sitting in the locker room and I was sitting next to um, Derek McKee. And somehow we just started talking about investing and how much money, you know, had I saved at that point. And he was asking me questions that I, I didn't really know the answer of. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Because I was focused on playing. Right. I had had a back surgery. So I was just trying to get back and just focusing on the game and never like really looking at my finances. But when he asked me some questions, I didn't know the answer. He was like, well, I'm gonna give you some homework answer these questions for me. Right. And I went back and I looked at everything and I started asking questions. And what I realized was like, I had like $350,000 saved. Now, right. I had a couple of assets here and there, but for the most part, I was still broke. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And this is after I had probably already made about 3 million bucks. Mm -hmm. And that was very eye opening for me at that time. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. And mm -hmm. it really like, you know, just made me look at everything differently. And Derek also introduced me to his financial advisor, which was an older gentleman out of Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And what I like about this gentleman was one, he really challenged me out the gate. You know, he was just like, you know, um, you know, any business opportunities that you want to do, um, I'll look at them for you. But, you know, you're going to have to present to me why this is a good deal. Right. And he start vetting deals on my own at a very young age. And it just started giving me more business sense and more business acumen and how to ask the right questions and not just fall for any opportunity that will actually come my way. You know, so I'll always give him a lot of credit for uh, those two gentlemen, because, you know, at you know, I think I was maybe 21, maybe mm -hmm. 22 years old mm -hmm. is when I started to have those kind of conversations. And it just really inspired me to just learn more every time, you know, a deal came across my plate and you know from an entrepreneur standpoint like I just you know I love business man it's like it's like the game you know what I'm saying and what I've learned about how I've translated what I've learned in sports to business is it's all about team you yeah. know so anytime I look at a deal I'm looking at the team who's involved you know right. what I'm saying who's going to be executing who's right. going to set the pick right. who's going to be three-point shooter right. who's going to you know what are the specialists that you have within your organization mm -hmm. on why this is a good business opportunity and why this is going to win and you know ever since I've taken that approach man I you know I've been pretty successful you know I will definitely say every idea or everything that I invested in did not work but most did and then, you know, you look at this business that I'm in now in cannabis, you know, this is our 10 year anniversary. I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we raised, you know, just under twenty five million dollars. Six million of that was my own money. So I have skin in the game mm -hmm. and I'm 10 years in and running a business that's cash flow positive where I look at a lot of my counterparts that don't even look like me. One, they, have, they already have all the advantages and raise right. hundreds and mm -hmm. a lot of them are out of business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would just say that we've done a really good job and I think I've done a really good job at the way I approach business. And I'm just continue to learn man because like to your point i came out of high school i didn't go to college i don't have no business degree mm -hmm. a lot of the decisions i've made is off of my gut but you know i've definitely learned how to look and, and do diligence on opportunities before i jump on them i'm gonna tell you something al uh if you made three million dollars and you were able to save three hundred fifty thousand dollars, you were pretty smart 
to say it. I'm just telling you right, right there, you were not a dummy, okay? You might say you were broke, but that was a pretty smart move. So it means, means that you were listening along the way, which means that you understood that you need to put money to the side. You know what to do with the money. But the people who came into your life said, you got that, let's build that, and this is how you have to come to me so you won't be coming up with no nightclub pitch, no car wash pitch with no with no uh, amortization tied to the five-year plan. And so when you when you got into the cannabis business, you know, right now is 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 you know, I remember when I first read about cannabis business, I just didn't even understand it. I, I was like confused, you know, was it legal? Can you, can, how can you do, you know, the, the athletes, they couldn't mess with it. Now you hear that the NFL is relaxing their rules. The NBA is relaxing their rules. If they're, they're using the word medically and induced reasons as to why you can use cannabis, CBD. When did it start changing? Because you dropped in when it was just like a, you know, a lot of people say good deal, but I'm going to stay away and watch. Now people are wanting to invest into your brand. Yeah, well, I mean, to your point, when I jumped in, it was not popular. You know, now every entertainer, athlete, everybody's making investments and, you know, trying to endorse products. You know, when I did this, you know, I was I put my contract at risk. Um, I put my freedom at risk, essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and we still do. I mean, it's still federally illegal. And I can be very honest with you now, 10 years later, when I first started, I was like you. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know what the hell I was getting into. Mm -hmm. um, all I knew was that I had seen it help my grandmother. Um with my grandmother's background being that, you know, she's a lady of, she's, she's a lady of the Lord. Uh, I tell people all the time, my grandmother not going to heaven. We all going to hell for sure. We ain't got a chance. <laughs> open-minded enough to try cannabis and it worked. And, you know, mm -hmm. for her, when she tried it, the first thing she did was go downstairs and read a Bible and mm -hmm. told me, you know, it was the first time she read a, read a Bible in over three years. Mm -hmm. So that's what just really inspired me, like I said, to just learn more. And, you know, from that day, from when I made the first investment, getting out, you know, our, our building that we have in Colorado now, 10 years and, uh, you know, being robbed, uh, being, you know, having the plants get sick in the, in the facility, mm -hmm. all these different obstacles that came my way. Um, I had a, I had every reason in the world to quit. Right. right. And just mm -hmm. be like, you know what, this ain't for me. You know, I could be golfing right now. Right. 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 You know, mm -hmm. I have to say enough money that I could be doing something totally different with my life. But, you know, I just really value that I had an opportunity to change the perception of, of, cannabis to the world right. by using my platform, speaking on it. And it went from that to trying to change the stigma to now my purpose is around the, uh, around the inclusion and diversity of the industry, right. you know, and how it in fact impacts the black community because they use cannabis to enslave us and to destroy our communities. Mm -hmm. Now all these, you know, we own less than 4% of the industry. There's billions of dollars being made and there's still <laughs> all these barriers for black people to participate in something that was nothing wrong with it in the first place. Right. 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 So mm -hmm. that's why my focus is literally on trying to, right the wrongs that happen to our people in our community. And, you know, I will say that uh, it's very hard, you know, because if you don't have the capital to be able to really go out and support these people, because this industry is so cash intensive, you know, there are a lot of challenges, but, you know, I feel like we've been able to, you know, use, you know, our, our platform in different ways where it doesn't always require us to have to put in money. You know, we could use just our influence, uh, some of our resources, just our knowledge, just giving people the right course 
course to go down instead of going down the way that I already went down and that right. was not the right way, you know? So it's just really just trying to just trying to figure out what's the best way to have impact on our community. And, you know, that's what, that's, that's what is, is constantly motivating me every day to continue to grow this business. You know, somebody, you know, you got over a hundred employees, you know, you have, you know, franchises in uh, California, Colorado, Michigan, Oklahoma, Oregon, and Washington. And I'm going to tell you, I was watching HBO when early stages of this cannabis and they, and they were showing this, this, this white guy, he had security all around him. Okay. And he had to go to a, a, a warehouse and he had to have cash. And, and they were saying something like, you know, you can't deposit this money in the bank. It was like, I was like, okay, that means like, you everything's a cash transaction. You couldn't deposit the money in the bank. That scared me. I went, hold up. I got to worry about my wife. I got to worry about my daughter. Somebody gonna kidnap somebody. How did you? How did you manage, man, to like uh, survive? You with all these barriers, you can't put the money in the bank. It's cash induced. You know, you you got to have security around you all the time. And I was like, I, I was blown away, man. They, they, they ran me out the back door. I went, no way, no way. Because people were coming at me, Al. They were coming at me. Rashad, you're smart, dude. You can make a lot of money. I saw that HBO special. I went, hell no. Uh-uh. No way. No way. No, it, no, it has its challenges, man. So, you know, when I came in, um, <laughs> banking definitely was tough. I started off in Colorado. So Colorado had some form of regulation and different things like that. Uh, when we first started, we definitely did have a bunch of cash, but that was only for maybe like the first year to 18 right. months. Mm-hmm. But then after that, credit unions started to take banking and they got filthy rich. You know, I will say like it was $3,500 for us to have just a hold an account with the bank monthly. It was a monthly fee of $3,500. And then we would have to pay 2 to 3% on every deposit over $10,000. You kidding? Hold on, right? hold on, hold on. Wow. You said, wait, 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 wait a minute, brother. You said they charge you $3,500 a month for the account. Yes. Did two percent of the account? Wow, ten thousand dollars. Wow. So yeah, the, yeah. So the bank. So if you was willing to take the chance with banking, you got rich. Wow, <laughs> that's what you've been calling me, Rashad. Do do start a black bank, something. I, I've been saying that for a while. I just it's only so much time of the day for me. You know right. what I'm saying? I still think that the banking is a huge need and opportunity in the space, and especially as more black people, especially social equity, continues to be more relevant in the space. Mm-hmm. I think that black people would love to bank with somebody that looks like them and, and someone that can understand them and their needs. You know what I'm saying? So there's definitely an opportunity there. So we. Can talk about that offline for sure. I'm going to tell you something, Al. You know, man, talking to you, man, MBA, doctor, dude, you are so well-honed, so articulate, so smart in this whole entrepreneurial space. Do you realize who you are? Do you realize how you communicate, man? That's what, when I met you, I went, this brother's sharp, man. But sometimes, you know, you're just one of those natural guys that don't appreciate, sometimes I didn't even respect the knowledge that you pour into people. And talk about that, man. It's it's tough because, like, obviously I'm living everything in, in real time, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously I'm constantly working every day and I'm right. building every day. So you don't really get a chance to sit back and kind of just realize, you know, what you have been able to build and what you've been able to to, to actually create for others. But, you know, my, my biggest thing is like, I really feel like this is a legacy opportunity for myself mm-hmm. in this 
and everybody that's involved with it. And, you know, that's what I continue to sell to my employees is like, you know, this, what we're doing is not only for us, it's for, it's for other people to at some point be able to, you know, benefit from as well. And, you know, I think that when you set up a business where it's about serving the people, I think right. that the reward that comes back, you can't put a number on it. Right. So I've never been the guy to say, I want to create a billion dollar company. Right. You know, let's just see where the chips fall, where they may. But I just feel like if we continue to serve people, continue to help people, um, continue to be consistent with within the brand and the, the products that we produce, I think sky's the limit for us. Man, I'm telling you something, man. Uh, I was impressed when I first met you, man. You are just, you just, you just don't understand your abilities right now. You are a walking, talking poster for black opportunity, uh, athlete transition to normal life, entrepreneurship, uh, planning. And I just want you to like, say, you on my show here, Money Making Conversation, I need you on CNBC. I need you on CNN. I need you on everything, MSNBC. Because, man, your game and your conversation, I need you on the cover of Black Enterprise, okay? Right. That's how smart you are talking because you're, mis you're mixing community and opportunity. Right. And that's what doesn't get spoken a lot in the community. And everybody wants to hear that. Then your backstory of how you started was based on your grandmother. Mm -hmm. So when you start mixing all that together, because, Al, I've been trying to get you about, about, about a year and a half on my show. Now I'm mad at you because you need to be on more than my show. You, my brother, need to be on more than my show. You're special, man. I said that back then. And hearing how you've developed as a man, as a business person, your story needs to be told more than just on this show. It needs to be across the board because you're employing people. Then you're, you're telling me, Rashawn, I'm trying to get more people into the game, but also I'm trying to break it down the numbers of where it was. At one time, it was... They was putting us in jail for this same thing and putting three and 10-year sentences on us. Now the white people selling it, and they're not going to jail. But then they won't let us buy it to sell it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, we could, we could go on and on about that. You know, it, it's, it's really screwed up. And, you know, I, what I always say when I talk to people, and especially when I talk to, like, you know, black business leaders in these communities that don't want cannabis, and I just tell them all the time, like, you got to really take another step back and look at this because it's happening, and this is generational wealth at risk for yes. our community. Yes. You know, I really feel that this cannabis plant will be, a, you know, a hundreds, a couple hundreds of billion dollars a year industry, mm -hmm. and if we can have a seat at the table and carve out our piece, I feel like we can take something that destroyed our community to actually rebuild it. You know, there's so many different ways of, you know, uh, participating in the space from, you know, hemp, industrial hemp. You know how many people reach out to me saying that they family own land in all these different parts of the country. And I'm like, yeah, let's start producing hemp on there because I, I envision at some point um, building communities made out of hemp, uh, hemp homes and different mm -hmm. things like that. There's mm -hmm. so many different ways that this plant can impact our community. It just hasn't been unlocked yet because it's been illegal. And then also people from our community have some form of PTSD of just seeing so many people being locked up and lives ruined that right. they just can't wrap their head around. Like this is now an opportunity where we can create real wealth. Right. You know? Right. So that's what I just continue to speak on and just, you know, continue to let people know and spread the good news because, you know, cannabis is the most dynamic plant in the world. And as we continue to unlock all the things that it does, 
you know, we're going to really be sitting 20 years from now thinking about how dumb it was that, you know, cannabis wasn't, you know, uh, a primary source of wellness a very long time ago. You know, here's the, here's the thought as, as we close up because of the fact that when I talk to you, what exactly does your company do? I want everybody to get a clear understanding. You, you know, you're in, you're in California, Colorado, Michigan, Oklahoma, Oregon, and Washington. You have over 100 employees. What does your company do, Al? So we, uh, we're we pretty much a vertically integrated uh, company. So we actually, we cultivate, we manufacture, uh, we have some retail um, locations. Uh, so that's called like pretty much vertical integration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and each state is a little different. So like in Colorado, we're vertically integrated. Michigan, we're vertically integrated. Uh, Oregon, we're vertically integrated. But, you know, California, uh, Oklahoma, Washington, those are places where we actually do white label agreements mm-hmm. or we actually provide those producers there our genetics to grow specifically for us. And then obviously we package it and we market it. So essentially, you know, Viola is a brand. Um, just think of it almost like a CPG. Al, if you don't stop, first of all, stop, Al. Vertically integrated, white label. How many people you know know what you're talking about, brother? Oh, oh, <laughs> I can't it's, believe it. It's Google. That's what I'm talking about. You're so into your game. When you start talking, you forget. I'm talking to a lot of people. They may know, but I can swear you 90% of the people don't know what white labeling is. And definitely don't know what vertically integrated is. So you could you explain that? Then white labeling, so we could just let everybody know the greatness of our heritage. So vertically integrated means that we control the supply chain, you know, from start to finish, almost from seed to sell. So that mm-hmm. means that we cultivate it, we manufacture it, whether we break it down into oils or concentrates, or we just make pre-rolls. That's that's considered manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Then we actually package it for distribution. Mm-hmm. And- to, to our end user, which is the dispensaries that we work with or our own uh, dispensaries. So that's what vertical integration is. And white labeling means that, you know, you have a brand that's really strong where you could do strategic partnerships with other uh, cultivators or manufacturers where they will uh, agree to produce product for you to put into your packaging mm-hmm. so that you can now enter into that state in an asset light model which I mean when asset light model means that we don't have to come in and spend like most cultivation uh, costs anywhere from five to $10 million to build out a 500 to a thousand light facility. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to go into that state and, you know, spend that CapEx, uh, you will find a partner that has lights and that respects your brand and will be able to cultivate for you so that you can actually enter that market without having to put up that upfront money. But the brand actually leads the way. My man, my man. <laughs> You are special. As an African-American, and I know you're trying to break walls, break down paths, how can you be an assistant in getting there? I know you're saying you're trying to normalize the process. Is it is it about just getting money? How do you, I just want to get licensed in this business? Dude. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, like, you know, with the licensing situation, it's it's very, it's unique, right? So mm-hmm. places on the West Coast, like, you know, uh, Oregon, California, it's relatively easy to get a license. Um, mm-hmm. It's expensive, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, because you have to, you know, submit applications, pay all these different fees and different things like that. And then once you actually win the license, now you need, you know, anywhere from, you know, two to $10 million to build out your facility, depending mm-hmm. on the size of it. Mm-hmm. On the East Coast, that's where it's really, really competitive. Mm-hmm. And on the East Coast is where pretty much all the opportunity is because all those licenses are all limited. 
right? Mm -hmm. So New York, there's only 10 vertically integrated licenses that they gave out. And when you think about how big the New York market is, you know that 10 licenses will never be enough, right? They're going to have to add probably another 100. Mm -hmm. But the way they set it up is these first 10 will be vertically integrated, like I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. which gives them an advantage, Mm -hmm. right? Entering into the market uh, because they already have a, a market share and they already have somewhat of a foothold already. But that license process, the reason why those 10 operators aren't black is because, or none of black people couldn't even really afford to apply was because that whole application process was probably a five to $7 million package. Right. Right. And there was probably 50, 60 companies Mm -hmm. that had put five (laughs) to $7 million in their package to apply and only 10 won. So when you think about that, like you could go and use all the resources you know, and you all put your five million dollars together right. and go win, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. It's so it's so the so the, the East is extremely expensive. And you know, even us, you know, I have another company called Village. Uh, that me and my co-founder Viola, we started, and you know that company, we 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 pretty much raised five million dollars to start that company to go after licenses, and you know last year we was awarded a license in Maryland mm-hmm. where you know we beat out some of the big Coca-Cola, Anheuser Busch uh, back companies. We were the number one ranked application in the state of Maryland, and then in Missouri we won full vertical integration. We won, we was number one in cultivation, number one in retail, and number three in manufacturing. <laughs> And, you know, we're still waiting on New Jersey, Illinois, Georgia. We're great to put in New York. So I've tried to figure out ways to kind of, you know, participate in every way possible. You know what I'm saying? And I've been having some success. So to answer your question, how can you support me? Right. We are constantly always raising money. Um, You know, all these new opportunities that come, you have, like I said, you have to find a way to fund them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you could be my first investor, Mm -hmm. you know, from this call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we from there. <laughs> well, my brother, I would tell you something, man. man it's, it's, first of all, you know, we're going to talk off our line because you're brilliant, man. I, I, I just feel that uh, uh, as part of the service of your business is you. Like, you know, magic is his business. You know what I'm saying? You have that same charisma. Your intellect is off the chart. Your articulation is a, you're a beast. And your smile is brilliant. And so, uh, again, man, I, th- I want to thank you for reuniting with me, Al Harrington, and uh, getting to talk and just see what your life is treating you well, man. And uh, thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations, Al. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, cool. If you want to hear or see any of my interviews for Money Making Conversations, please go to moneymakingconversations.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I am your host. <laughs>